Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this virtual noontime lecture. We wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honour of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Just before we get started today, I want to give you some uh, notes about some upcoming events. So our next lecture, which will be held in person only in the Robbins Forum at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, is going to be held on October 5th at 12 noon. It's going to feature a prominent uh, a talk by the prominent author and journalist Earl Swift as he tells the story of the lunar rover and its role in Apollo missions 15, 16 and 17. This co coincides with our current traveling exhibition, Apollo, when we went to the moon. And that same week, between the 6th and 8th of October, we'll be hosting History Blooms. The VMHC is working in partnership with the Garden Club of Virginia to highlight history and horticulture with floral recreations, which represent differing landscapes across the Commonwealth. Visit our website to see the range of workshops, talks, displays, and other opportunities that are going to be available over that weekend. And now today, or now, we'll move on to, the, to today's program. In the antebellum South, enslaved people who escaped from their enslavers could camouflage themselves among free Black populations in urban centers like Baltimore, Charleston, New Orleans, and Richmond. In urban areas, enslaved people found shelter, work, and other networks of survival that allowed them to live in slaveholding states while shielded and supported by their host communities. It essentially constituted an act of collective resistance. Enslaved people who fled slavery were essentially undocumented, forging lives that were free from slavery, but without the, the uh, legal status that free people could enjoy. The interconnectedness of free and enslaved black people in each city helped to determine how successfully runaways could remain invisible to others. And here to explore this aspect of black history and the history of slavery through a focused exploration of the city of Richmond is Dr. Viola Francisca Mueller. Viola is a historian at the Bonn Center for Dependency and Slavery Studies at the University of Bonn. Germany, and her research interests include the legacies of slavery and the trajectories of racism. She received her PhD from Leiden University in 2020, and her first book, Escape to the City, Fugitive Slaves in the Antebellum South, was published in 2022 and is the subject of today's talk. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mueller. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you so much for this introduction. And uh, also uh, thanks to Graham Dossier for inviting me. It's been almost a year since this book has been published. And I'm very flattered uh, that you are here today, even online, to listen to this talk. The book starts off with the observation that there is so much written on how in the antebellum period, the southern states continuously blamed and verbally attacked the northern states for enticing slaves away. That's what they said, meaning for encouraging and even actively supporting them to escape slavery in the south. But the north was not the only place. Throughout the five or six decades before the Civil War, 
the southern states also unleashed firestorms of political furor on places like Spanish Florida, Mexico, and Canada because of their relatively open acceptance of slave refugees from the south. Angry slaveholders and impatient southern politicians stood at the forefront of this. And things resulted in harsh diplomatic tensions that often led to far-reaching measures, or at least contributed to them. Uh, so think of the incorporation of Florida in 1821, the annexation of Texas in 1845, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and of course, the Civil War. Southern rhetoric directed at the Northern states was particularly wrought with charges such as that Northerners were on a, and this is a quote, mad and mischievous crusade. So the, the, the Virginia House of Delegates said that, and that this crusade endangered the peace of the South by refusing to return runaways. I would like to show you today that such accusations and attacks that were directed outwardly were somewhat ironic um, because there were vast numbers of runaway slaves who remained within the slaveholding South. This has been a largely untold story so far because we always talk about the Underground Railroad, but the majority of people who ran away from bondage actually stayed in the South. Now the question is, why? Why would ens enslaved men and women um, ens escape slavery but not go north or south to Mexico, depending on where they were in the first place? Why go to a city in the midst of slaveholding territory, in the midst of slavery? And there are many answers really to this question that I can't all get into today, at least not in a detailed way, but they include proximity to family and friends, uh, work opportunities, the fact that life in the North too was risky and racism was omnipresent. But the most important reason uh, was that for these people, Southern cities and towns were rather promising places because they housed substantial and growing numbers of free black people. Fugitive slaves illegally lived camouflaged within these black populations. Illegal in the sense that because they remained in slaveholding territory, they could not expect to ever be legally free, unlike those who went to free soil. So let me at this point emphasize the essence of free soil being that when an enslaved person set foot on free soil, they became free. And this was not the case when they stayed in the South. Now, this observation that their sheer presence in southern cities was illegal structures the way in which I approach fugitivity in my book. In a society where enslavement was justified on basis of law, thousands of enslaved people could only escape slavery against the law by breaking the law. And those who stayed in the South remained within the jurisdiction of the very slaveholding society that stipulated that they were slaves. Their legal status did not change. This means that these men, women, and sometimes children moved clandestinely toward and within the cities. And in order to understand how they did this and who helped them and why the urban context was 
accommodating. I foreground issues of mobility, networks, and labor in southern cities. And for this talk today, I will focus on Richmond. So this is my book that you can hopefully see here on the slides, Escape to the City. It is about four cities, Baltimore, Charleston, New Orleans, and Richmond. And I have another book chapter that only deals with Richmond. Um, it's in the book on the, on the right side, Fugitive Slaves in Spaces of Freedom. There are a lot of exciting sources to study fugitive slaves in Richmond. Um, but let me tell you about two that are rather unique. So first, there is the daybook of the Richmond Police Guard. This daybook lists 935, so almost a thousand black men and women for whom the police should be on the lookout over a period of 10 years, from 1834 to 1844. Of these almost 1,000 people, 74 were reported as having been caught and brought back to their owners. 14 were reported as having voluntarily returned and all the rest, 847 people, simply remained unaccounted for. These people were suspected or known to be in enrichment and simply disappeared. So this was more or less 100 people per year. But then again, it's just one source, right? This is about um, slaveholders proactively approaching the police and tasking them to look out for their runaways. There's also another source that I'd like to show you because it's, it's from here. It's from the Virginia Historical Society. <clears throat> it's the jail records of the Richmond city sergeant. And these records reveal that between 1841 and 1846, so five years, there were 215 black people who were incarcerated as runaway slaves. So here you see a page with four entries of people that were jailed. And you have to imagine this like a very thick book with, with pages and pages like the one on this slide. I have transcribed the first entry for you. It's from March 13, 1841, and it reads, Lewis Brown, a slave said to be the property of Thomas Brown of Chesterfield County, committed as a runaway on the 6th of February, 1841. And then written with a different quill, but the same handwriting right underneath, it says that Samuel Jennings received $5 for apprehending Lewis Brown. Samuel Jennings apparently could not sign himself, so he placed the cross here where it says his mark. So these sources are very rich. Um, we could extract a whole lot of information from them. For example, how long runaways were in jail, if someone and who made money by apprehending them, um, how expensive this was for the city treasury. And with sufficient of these sources, we can trace where the majority of runaways came from. Lewis Brown had escaped from Chesterfield County and counting all the other evidence in, in the police records allowed me to draft this map with the most common origins of fugitive slaves in Richmond. 
and becomes very clear that short distance migration is dominating in this story, namely mostly from nearby counties and from the city of Richmond itself. Um, but not only. So there were also enough people who came from more distant places. And we also clearly recognize a pattern of people who took the reverse route of the domestic slave trade. So people who were, say, sold from Richmond to South Carolina or Louisiana and then escaped and tried to go back home. When thinking about slave flight to southern cities, the most obvious strategy for runaways would be to aim at passing for free. And they would do this by blending in with the large black population. So let's now have a look at these population numbers. So first to give you an idea of the development of slavery, by 1790, there were 300,000 enslaved men, women, and children in Virginia. And um, although you probably know that slavery intensified much more in the Lower and Deep South, and that slaveholders sold a million enslaved people away from the Upper South, uh, the, upper south the enslaved population still grew in absolute numbers. At any time during the antebellum era, Virginia had more people in bondage than any other state. So by 1830, for example, there were almost half a million, and then the numbers rose much less rapidly up to the Civil War. By contrast, as you see in the first line, the overall enslaved population in the US increased to nearly 4 million. Coming back to Richmond, as the table below shows, the city grew speedily in the antebellum era, 38,000 inhabitants by 1860. This was a proper city by the standards of the time. And um, over the years, really, uh, Richmond became a classic mid-Atlantic walking city with an inner section occupied by industry and commerce. And Greg Kimball from the Library of Virginia has written a lot about this. Something that's very important, um, Richmond's enslaved population grew substantially throughout this period. This is something that was unique to Richmond. In all the other southern cities, urban slavery actually decreased um, at the latest from the 1830s, 40s on. Only in Richmond did it continue to grow. Now have a look at the numbers for free people of color in the middle row. And um, these develop much more modestly. But I would like to argue that these numbers should be taken with a grain of salt. A thriving industrial city, Richmond's capacity to attract and absorb large numbers of runaway slaves meant that the black population was actually higher than the official census numbers. And authorities sometimes admitted to this uncertainty. For example, Virginia Governor Thomas Mann Randolph said in 1820 that, quote, the actual relation of numbers between the free citizens of the state and free, free people of color must necessarily remain somewhat longer undetermined. So he formulated it in a complicated way, but really the governor was unsure about the numbers of black people in Virginia. The background to this confusion, to the difficulty of counting the population was among others, 
a law passed by the Virginia legislature in 1806. This law required all newly emancipated slaves to leave the Commonwealth within 12 months. And as you can imagine, many, if not most, manumitted people simply refused to leave or they couldn't even leave because where would they go? Very often their family members were still in Virginia, so they stayed against the law. So this law was virtually unenforceable, but what it did was to create over a period of almost 60 years a significant illegal black population, legally manumitted, but illegally, illegally in the state residing people. These numbers reached into the thousands. Additionally, there were countless of free people of color who did have a legal status. Um, but for a variety of reasons couldn't prove it. So they might not have freedom papers, either because they had lost them or they never had them because they couldn't afford to pay the fee or, and this underlines their agency really, they chose not to register. Avoiding, pay, pay, avoiding to pay taxes was a rather strong incentive for not getting registered in a place because taxes were very high for free black people. In the beginning, I told you that runaway slaves in Richmond and other southern cities were there illegally. But now we see that large parts of the free black population were also illegal residents. And we should really understand the law of 1806 as something that brought black people of various backgrounds closer to one another. And I will just give you one example that makes us understand how difficult it could be for slaveholders to find their runaways in Richmond. In 1848, and this is from a court case, enslaved Nancy absconded from Henrico County and was, quote, lurking in and about the city of Richmond. But although this information was known to her master, he did not know, quote, in what particular part of said city Nancy was hiding and was unable to find her. So Nancy had literally camouflaged herself within the black population of Richmond. Unfortunately, we don't really know who Nancy was. It is um, difficult to obtain detailed information on specific people, but we can take all the information about many runaways together and from there come to an understanding of what was needed so that they could make a bid for freedom. The antebellum period saw a radical change in the living and working conditions of enslaved people in the US South, with industrialization, urbanization, and a shift from tobacco to wheat production in Virginia, many slaveholders came to hire out their surplus slaves in the cities and towns. Even if this was sometimes temporary or seasonal, it meant that enslaved men and women got to know places like Richmond, like Petersburg, like Norfolk. They went to cities themselves or their new people who did, hired slaves, especially those with professional skills, enjoyed an increasing mobility and gained wide geographical knowledge. 
but also enslaved people who were not hired out could learn about a city. For example, when they were sent to town to run errands or market goods. The picture that you see here is not from Virginia. I meant to give you a visual idea of the mobility some black people experienced. For example, an enslaved man called Nelson Duncan, who was a driver of a carriage like this one in the picture and frequently drove from Petersburg to Richmond. He absconded in 1837, as did Catherine from Manchester, who delivered milk to Richmond. So, you know, we shouldn't think that only enslaved people with what is considered high skills experience mobility. There were many other jobs that expanded people's horizons, including women's. The analysis of the daybook of the Richmond police indicates that women made up 25% of runaways in the 1830s and 40s. Women clearly fled less often than men to the north or to other free soil regions, but it really seems that southern cities were a particularly promising destination for enslaved women who wanted to escape. And as a side note, the youngest runaways I found in Richmond were 10-year-old Nancy, it's a different Nancy, and eight or nine-year-old Henry. Mobile people met other people, people who could help them. When Lily Tent ran away in Richmond in 1839, his owner stated that he had, quote, acquaintances working at almost every tobacco factory in Richmond. Now, if you recall the table on the ratio between free and enslaved black Richmonders, there were many more enslaved people, and many of them were hired and self-hired. Estimates suggest that by 1860, almost half of Richmond's slaves were hired out. The majority also lived separate from their masters and mistresses, and passing as one of them was often a much more promising strategy for fugitive slaves than passing for free. So in my opinion, this is something to really reflect on, right? Runaway slaves who pretended to be self-hired slaves. And this happened particularly in Richmond and in Charleston. Specific acquaintances, friends, co-workers were important allies. But actually, it was the entire Black community that functioned as a receiving society for runaways in need. Black Richmonders showed a remarkable solidarity across status lines. This was partly because they shared, they shared many of the same fears and hardships. The illegal status of so many made all of them vulnerable and constituted a constant threat to their freedom. Let's not be mistaken, fugitive slaves in southern cities or in the south in general, it was, a, it was a very arduous life. It was very difficult. And from the sources that I showed you, it is clear that they did have to watch out for police and reward hunters. And they also were a thorn in many people's eye. For wealthy slaveholders, they were a threat because their example might motivate others to escape. For not so wealthy slaveholders, they could mean a real monetary loss. For working whites, black people in general meant job competition. 
And then when in the 19th century suffrage rights were extended to non-property holding white men, the opposition of white workers to the competition from slaves and free black people became more strongly politicized. The mobilization, political mobilization of the middle classes and lower classes promised vast numbers of votes. And fugitive slaves appeared as an obvious target because they presented an economic threat to large parts of the voting population. In fact, to almost everybody except the industrialists. Think especially of the mid-century and the 1850s when large numbers of European immigrants moved to southern cities. The cities were growing and the shares of the white inhabitants grew most markedly. But fugitive slaves were hard to locate because they often successfully camouflaged among the urban black population. For those in power in the cities, it was more practical to go after illegal black residents in general. You remember, those manumitted after 1806, those without papers or registration. Their numbers were larger and they did not legally belong to individual whites. In 1853, Joseph Mayo became the first democratic mayor of Richmond. And on taking office, he promised to intensify control over black Richmonders and to make them, quote, know their places and obey the law. Under his administration, illegal free black residents were systematically arrested, imprisoned and forced to work. Here I can only refer to a very revealing study by the late Carrie Lettymore IV, who analyzed how legally manumitted but illegally in the state residing black men and women in Richmond were tracked in times of labor shortage. They would be jailed for a few days or weeks. Uh, most of them wouldn't be able to pay off the jail fees and then they would be hired out for exceptionally low wages to compensate the jail fees, uh, which could take them months or even years. And this was the case where people were actually able to prove their free status. Those who couldn't were sold. Free black people who lived illegally in Richmond could be arrested and sentenced to slavery. The prominent presence of the slave trade in the city was a constant reminder of the fate that could befall them. Their children could be forced into apprenticeships. So in a way, the lives of free illegals and fugitive slaves did not diverge that much as one might expect. All people of color were exposed to arbitrary policing, extra legal violence and civil disability before the law. Nobody black ever truly exited slavery or attained full freedom in the South. And this fragility, this shared discrimination and vulnerability worked as a connector between free and enslaved black Southerners. And fugitives were able to find allies who lodged them, helped them find work, provided valuable information, or simply turned a blind eye, didn't ask questions. This was also what fugitives depended on. Now, this also changes our understanding of slave flight. For a long time, people escaping enslavement have been seen as acting alone. 
the Underground Railroad is more or less the only example of an escape network. But recognizing that almost the entire Black population in a city like Richmond functioned as a receiving community pushes us to see this type of fugitivity as collective action. But what about white people? What about slaveholders? Was taking up 215 people in five years, the source that I showed you, the, the jail record book, was that the most effective Richmond's police could do to counteract slave flight? Is it altogether possible that the municipal authorities essentially tolerated the presence of runaway slaves in their city? Now, I'm saying that it would have been simply impossible and also undesirable to round up all of Richmond's illegal Black residents, including fugitives. Their numbers were simply too large, and Richmond's economy profited from Black labor. They were integral to keeping the industries running. And at the latest here, we see the striking parallels with present-day und undocumented workers. In 1850, 80% of Richmond's political leaders were slaveholders, but still the city's political class diverged more and more from Virginia's planter class. Professionals, merchants, lawyers, and other businessmen came to fill in important political positions on the local level. Also in 1850, the power of industrialists became very apparent when the General Assembly ordered that it was from now on the duty of the slave owner, not the hirer, to pay for the recovery of runaway slaves. In other words, employers shouldn't be bothered. What they wanted was a workforce as diverse as possible and to combine laborers who were in different conditions and had different backgrounds. So illegal, fugitives, without papers, native whites, Europeans. Richmond was among all cities, the one that was flexible enough to accommodate its own interests of slaveholding alongside progressive capitalist production. And flexible in this regard also meant not asking too many questions about the workers. So employers in Richmond often knew that their tobacco workers didn't have papers or that their laundress wasn't supposed to be in the state or that some of the construction workers might be runaway slaves. And this ties in with what I said in the beginning about the furor that was made when enslaved people escaped outside of the southern states. Within the South, and especially in the cities, a mix of ineffectiveness, division of responsibilities, and an actual interest in keeping illegal workers in the growing and industrial, in the growing industrial and commercial sites, or at least let's say tolerating their presence, turned the fugitive slave question into a rather silent issue. Fugitive slaves remained an integral part of Richmond. So to conclude, I could not tell the story about fugitive slaves without other people. I didn't only want to write a book about why and how people escaped slavery. I wanted to know what happened afterwards, where they went, why, how they lived, where they worked. 
And while the tolerating attitude of many whites was, was a clear, if unintentional, support, it was the strong link between fugitive slaves and their black host communities, which led the cornerstone for their survival. Be it about finding housing, as I just said, finding work or socializing. Their solidarity was based on the discrimination that united people of African descent. All black people were illegal in one way or another, always in violation of some law, always presumed criminals. As a result, the urban fugitive fit right in. Yet by being a runaway or helping them and in Richmond and other southern cities, fugitive slaves and their helpers stood at the forefront of defying slavery. Seen in this light, and I do want to repeat this, seen in this light, southern fugitivity emerges as collective action and once more attests to resistance to slavery as lying at the heart of the Black experience before the Civil War. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Viola. That was such an interesting talk, relevant as well. And I really appreciated the ways in which you emphasize the sort of collective and community action in the ways in which people of African descent were resisting slavery. Um, we have a number of questions and I'll, I'll just get started. So our first one relates to your source material. Um, you know, you've, you've spoken about some of the archival challenges that we face when researching the history of slavery, but one of our attendees asks, um, <clears throat> excuse me, whether digitized newspaper databases played a role in your research, and if so, to what degree did they do that? Yeah, thank you so much. This is a very important question. Um, so um, for the study, I tried to really draw on as many sources as I possibly could. So um, digital newspapers, but also archive newspapers um, are very important. I used a lot of runaway slave advertisements, um, which obviously reflect the beliefs and the knowledge of slaveholders and not necessarily, um, yeah, well, we have to gain insight into the experience of runaway slaves through a bit of a detour. Um, but very often, um, for example, slaveholders would not only suspect that a runaway slave was in a place like Richmond, but they would actually be able to corroborate this information by saying, oh, my enslaved um, woman has been seen in Richmond in the last two weeks. And sometimes more detail has been seen on this and that street even. So um, this, is, this is a very important source. And the police records that I shared um, are very important. Um, police work in this regard is also very intriguing to study um, in how far they prioritized looking out for runaways during some periods and uh, didn't do that um, in others, also depending on who was in charge in the cities. Um, I also looked into private correspondence, you know, trying to um, track down in how far slaveholders were talking among each other about their slaves being run to specific places. Um, yeah, so um, runaway slave ads in newspapers, but also newspapers in general and political speeches and, you know, legislative debates. These were all very important sources for, for this book. Thanks so much for this question. 
Absolutely. And I, I guess just while we're on the sort of subject of, of source material, um, and again, this is something you've been touching upon, but of course, you said it yourself when these are individuals for whom we often have very biased source material or a lack of source material, but even more so when these individuals are attempting to camouflage themselves, right? So it's not just the issue of um, a lack of material or the biases, but of the actual individuals not wanting to appear on the record. So could you just talk a little bit more about that challenge and how it impacted your methodology? Yes, certainly. Um, so I came to recognize that I could actually ask a lot of questions and partially answer, answer them by asking, why not? Why, why didn't we hear a lot about this? Why there, were, why there weren't no... Um, substantial political debates about this why was why were southern newspapers not full of these 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 issues right why why is it so difficult to piece these piece uh, to take these pieces and 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 piece the puzzle together let's say um so this silence in a way this archival silence is already part of the answer of how natural a part of southern uh uh, of southern cities these runaway slaves were. So when you think of undocumented workers today, then you qu quickly realize that somehow everybody knows that they're here, but then nobody really knows where they are. And then you're not surprised if, you know, police takes a couple of them up. But uh, when I was doing um, research in the United States, for example, um, um, archivists in the Maryland State Archives, they could even tell me that apparently some undocumented workers had worked there. So, I mean, they are, they are running our economy, really. They're really important for the local economy and everybody knows about this, but our newspapers today, they don't really cover this either. So this is, this is one thing that I want to highlight, is um, asking why not? Why don't we hear more about this and who could benefit from this silence? Um, and the other strategy or method um, really was to um, take those who didn't succeed, those who ended up uh, jailed, um, those who ended up in court, um, or those who were brought back to their masters and mistresses, and then from, from there make reverse conclusions and try to get an understanding of all the others who succeeded. So, you know, when, when somebody was taken up by the police, how did this happen, where and when? And um, yeah, so what did other people perhaps do differently so that they could succeed and were not detected? And this, this makes me think, because you were talking about the um... The, the presence of these individuals in, in Southern newspapers, in political speeches. Um, so this makes me wonder, were Northerners aware of these communities? Were abolitionists aware? And what sort of commentary, if, if they were aware, did they produce around these like fugitive communities in urban areas, given that that potentially undermines the traditional narrative of sort of 
freedom seeking northwards to the north or to Canada. Yeah, thanks for this question. I think that's a bit of a tricky question that I can only partially answer because there's so little written evidence about this. Um, I mean, perhaps it's good to know that a lot of fugitive slaves in southern cities actually went there to stay. They went there on a permanent or long-term basis. Um, but many others also use southern cities uh, temporarily or as a springboard to escape north or just as a, you know, transit place, let's say. Um, so this is one thing. Um, and then obviously people in the south had to be extremely careful to leave traces. So re finding written evidence from that time is, is really difficult. Um, so we might think of institutions and networks like, um, like black churches, um, and then depending on the place they were in, in, in Richmond, for example, you had the, um, the first African Baptist church, um, they might have provided a sort of information network. Um, they might have counted among their members, um, well, definitely illegal, illegal, city residents and perhaps also some runaway slaves. Um, but then again, um, there's a degree of speculation to this. So, oh, thank you for that answer, Viola. Um, so another question that we have relates to two key flashpoints in the in the history of slavery in Virginia, which are, of course, Gabriel's Rebellion and um, Nat Turner's Rebellion. So could you talk about how those events impacted these larger, more concentrated populations of African-Americans in urban centers? Our our um, our. Uh, attendee who's asking this question is presuming that these would have been causes for concerns given that they were more concentrated in urban settings. Yeah, thanks for this. Um, so this is definitely the case actually um, with Turner um, and uh, with basically any other slave rebellion or attempted rebellion, we see that the legislative framework um, around free black people grows tighter. So um, legislators and, and white Southerners always use these events um, to take away more of political and civil rights um, of free black people. So I think in the in the talk, I also mentioned that, you know, the, the, the situation increasingly grew more difficult and tighter. Um, and yeah, we can definitely pinpoint in the timeline um, this, this, this connection to this rebellion and attempted um, um, attempted revolts. Um, and so another another question that we have, which again, g given the challenges that you've you faced within the archives, may be a little tricky to, to answer, but. Um, one of our viewers is wondering, um, given the sort of geographical connection between Richmond itself and the sort of surrounding counties where a lot of these uh, individuals who were fleeing slavery often um, came from, 
did you find evidence of these people uh, escaping in in groups or was it more individuals? And do we know if when in Richmond or when in other urban centres in the South, were they able to kind of recreate those communities that they had known in more rural areas? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, so um, people escaping in groups um, who went to southern cities, I did not find that many. So when you compare that to um, flight to the north or to Mexico, then this is much more common that people would actually um, flock together or escape with their family members um, nuclear family um, in these kinds of constellations. Um, and slave people who went to Southern City were almost always alone. Sometimes, you know, we see a mother escaping with their child or a couple, but these are rather exceptions. Um, and as to the question of whether, you know, um, a family group or or a group of friends and kin could eventually all together end up in the same city. I don't really have sources for this. Um, my inclination would be that it would be possible, you know, if they were really careful, like living together probably wouldn't be the best idea, but if they, you know, kind of scattered across the city, then they could probably all live in a place like Richmond, yeah. So what I saw as, um, with regard to the development over time is that um, in the early 19th century, it seems that many runaway slaves would stay with family members in the city. But then we mustn't, we mustn't, we mustn't um, underestimate the networks of the slaveholders either, right? So um, later on, it became a much better strategy to stay with people that were more distant knots in their, in their personal networks. So with with acquaintances, with um, with co-workers, somebody who was not necessarily their father or their brother, because this was also known to too many too many slaveholders. Um, thank you for that answer. Um, so, what one of the questions that we have, because you sort of touched upon this, and I guess the sort of popular imagining and understanding often sort of confines slavery to rural areas. It's associated with plantation life. And one of the big distinctions is, of course, the sort of um, uh, domestic work and work that was undertaken agriculturally. Um, but, but one of our viewers is wondering, can you just talk about some of the features of this more urbanized industrial slavery, particularly in a place like Richmond, which has quite a um, substantial manufacturing history? What, what did it, what characterized that sort of urban industrialized slavery? slavery? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Um, this is really an integral part of Richmond's um, 19th century history, I would say. So, as I said, um, urban slavery in Richmond kept on growing throughout the antebellum era and this made it really a unique case. Um, so, when Virginia experienced this shift from tobacco to weed production, especially in the eastern part of Virginia and especially in the Tidewater, um, 
slaveholders didn't need their um, enslaved laborers all year round, right? So they started to hire out enslaved people temporarily or seasonal, seasonally in the industries of the cities. Um, and by this, which I think is also an interesting thing to consider, they counteracted the replacement of slavery by wage labor in these cities. So this is something that we see in all the other cities. In Richmond, it was different. It also meant that they turned large parts of the enslaved population into semi-wage laborers, really. And these were people who then experienced both worlds, if you will. They were still enslaved, but they also worked independently. They worked in the tobacco factories, for example, in, in Richmond. Um, women, women too, but also as domestic servants. Um, in a place like Richmond, you have to imagine any city that was growing so rapidly and there was constant demand for, you know, construction workers, um, um, Enrichment, also blacksmith, uh, shoemakers, um, laundresses, if you were women. Um, so really, when it comes to work opportunities, I mean, these were not jobs that were paying very well, but there was really enough uh, work to be done so that a place like Richmond was, was constantly absorbing um, and, and demanding new, new workers. Thank you for that answer. Um, this is this is kind of a question about the origins of this project. But um, uh, one one of our attendees has asked, how how did you come to this? What was the sort of trajectory that brought you to studying uh, slavery in the urban South? Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I have somewhat of a trajectory um, studying slavery. I have a background in Latin American studies. Um, and very early actually uh, came to focus on slavery in, in, in Latin America. Um, but then also, you know, in the Americas in, in, in general, I guess. Um, and yeah, studying fugitive slaves is really, I find it, I found it very, let's say, interesting and maybe also motivating because you are confronted with with people who who want it out right it's it's not it's not a it's not a this book is not a grim story of people in bondage and then everything got worse and worse so i mean obviously um all these 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 bleak features of american slavery are in there Families members being sold away, um, extreme physical and 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 uh, psychological violence, but but also it's 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 really the hope that you see, right? The hope that these people had, um, the hope that they could achieve a life um, elsewhere outside of of slavery. Um, so yeah, in in a way, it was it was a really beautiful experience researching this, I would say, um, and see, you know, what people are capable of and what they what they risk um, if they really want to make something work, if they really want to, if they really want out. Um, this is one thing. And yeah, I mean, as I briefly alluded to in the presentation, 
there are so many parallels to our times as well, right? So when I started um, researching this, um, the, the, the refugee crisis in Europe was, was, was just beginning. So um, we also live in a, in, a, in a world and in a time where, where people have to flee, obviously uh, not, not, not from a condition such as slavery, but um, yeah, the, the, experience, the experiences that many of these slave refugees in Southern cities had, especially when it comes to the question of where they worked, um, yeah, this is something that resembles undocumented migrants and undocumented workers so much. So um, it is a historical topic, but it definitely has parallels to, to our times. Absolutely. It's yeah, it, it has that relevance to, to the present day. I think, as you say, it's that remarkable story of, of sort of exploring and understanding people's determination in extraordinary circumstances. And I think also, as we've kind of been talking, presenting this challenge of building history around people that didn't want to be in the historical record. So often it's the other way that we have, you know, a wealth of material because people do want to be recorded, remembered. But there's this unique circumstance with regard to the subject that you're studying where the, um, the, the, the main subjects are striving to be to go unrecorded. So I think it's, it's fascinating in that respect. Um, we, we had a question, and perhaps this doesn't um, link into your work on Richmond specifically, perhaps one of the other cities, uh, or, or maybe not at all, but are you aware of the um, sort of role of descendant communities in kind of building these histories, or perhaps non-traditional sources when we think about things like um, oral history traditions? Um, does, does any mention of this come up in WPA narratives in the 20th century? Yes, um, this is a great question. So I did look into the WPA um, interviews um, and I couldn't really find a lot of information about people who stayed in southern cities, but there is something on people who went to southern cities and from there moved on um i i mean if anybody is there online now um who who knows of this how you call them non-traditional sources i would be i would be intrigued to hear more um from my personal experience people who do have this part of their family history um, that they're interested in um the people that I talk to, they, they do tend to focus more on escape to the north. This is my personal experience, that this is much more dominant and present in people's family histories and memories. Thank you for that, that brilliant answer. Um, we're, we're coming up towards the end of the hour, so I guess we'll finish with this question. Um, what are you working on next? Do you continue to sort of look at the lives of these individuals through reconstruction or are you working on something entirely different? So now I'm sort of going back to where I, where I came from, namely from a uh, Latin American uh, 
studies focus. So the next study that I'm just kicking off um, is a comparative study between urban workers in Baltimore, Havana and Rio de Janeiro um, in the transition time from slavery to wage labor and the question of how mechanisms of coercion change when it becomes obvious that um, slavery will eventually end. So it's from the side of the em employers, um, how do they react? How, how does their, their, their strategies of managing and procuring workers change? And what does that mean for, for the world of the workers? Well, we certainly look forward to hearing more about that project as it progresses. Um, so I'd, I'd like to thank you, Viola, for an absolutely wonderful talk, one that was relevant and meaningful, uh, incredibly interesting today. Um, we are so happy, our, our um, audience have been happy in asking lots of questions, and I'm pleased that we got a productive discussion at the end there. And so I'd just like to thank you again for delivering a really wonderful, really wonderful talk of the BMHC. And just to remind our audience that our next lecture is going to be held in person on the 5th of October at noon, and that will be Earl Swift as he talks to us about the Lunar Rover. So thank you so much, Viola. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and thanks for what was a nice evening where I am.